0: This is the Kratom Science Journal Club with Dr. Jonathan Cachet, neuroscientist and expert in psychopharmacology. In each episode, we discuss an article in a peer-reviewed journal. I'm your host, Brian Gallagher, blog and social media writer for KratomScience.com, your source for all things Kratom. Episode 5, we discuss assessing physiological dependence and withdrawal potential of mitragyny using scheduled controlled behavior in rats from the journal Psychopharmacology. Full citation in the description. The study concluded mitragyny does not induce physiological dependence and can alleviate morphine withdrawal.
1: So an interesting paper this time around.
0: Yeah. Certainly. There's a lot of weird stuff in here and I, and I like that um rat video it kind of I was trying to picture it in my head when I was reading the study, but that definitely helped. Have you uh worked with rats before?
1: Uh, I have rats yeah. and mice uh, but that was more of like a you know a lab course class uh during grad school um but zebrafish are mentioned in here, and if you look at that paper on who, who what that paper was on zebrafish when they used Metragenine, which by the way I'm, I'm totally cool with switching to MG and just keeping it there for the rest of our episodes <laughs> yeah. moving forward. Um, but if you go to that zebrafish paper, uh, they they my name's all over it. They cite my name for the for the behavioral tests, and so I spent a lot more time developing. Uh, the behavioral models, or like translating essentially the endpoints that we use in rodents to fish. Yeah. Um, and, you know, to be honest, com- when I think about what we were doing with the fish compared to what they did here with the operant conditioning, so, you know, o- operant conditioning is basically just a behavior that's reinforced. Uh, it could be positively or negatively reinforced. And so in our case, We had uh, rats who were only getting, eighty, I think, 85% of their diet. So they were kept hungry in their home cages. And then they would go to the experimental room. They would get an injection. um, And then they would go into these operant chambers. And basically, there's a a whole phase at the beginning there. I think it's called the shaping phase where, you know, the rat goes into the box and they press any button, they get a piece of food. But eventually after doing that over multiple days, you start, you start to change it. So only one of those levers works the right lever, and you got to press the right lever 10 times in order to get the food pellet to come out. So once the rat has demonstrated that he understands that, like where, you know, you drop him in the operant chamber and essentially he goes right to the right one. Doesn't even look at the left one, presses it 10 times gets his food pellet. You know that the, the, behavior has been learned. It's basically instilled or as they refer to it in the paper as stable, uh, stabilized. Yeah. Um, so the indication of dependence or withdrawal was interpreted from a modification of that behavior, meaning they would, you know, yesterday they went into the, the operant chamber and they were pressing that right lever 10 times, just like they did the past six days before, no joking around, right to the lever, to get the food pellet. You give them the uh, morphine, give them metragenine. If, if the drug caused dependence or induced dependence, or if the animal was in a withdrawal-like state, it would have reduced the response time or the a number of times they pressed that right bar in order to get the food pellet. And w- what started me off on this is compared to, you know, especially zebrafish, but I don't know how good of a proxy that particular behavior is for um, determining like a, a, a withdrawal-like state, for um, physiological dependence. Are you mm-hmm. following me? Yeah. For example, we did the same exact studies in zebrafish where we gave them morphine for two weeks, two times a day, um, and then gave them a shot of the zone before we put them into the novel tank, a tank that they haven't been in. It's just like putting them in the operant chamber. So we would induce withdrawal after giving them a chronic exposure to morphine. Um, and with zebrafish, you're looking at their movement. As so, we're looking at the amount of time spent at the bottom of the tank versus the amount of uh, time spent at the top of the tank. We're also looking for erratic movements. So fish, when they're in a highly stressed out state. They just swim like crazy, like, you know, it's just uh, unorganized, sort of just flailing around. Mm-hmm. Um, very clear. You can see it. And then we would also, after that, um, extract cortisol or the primary stress hormone from all those zebrafish to see if it was elevated. Because th- it would be an indication Then we would have a behavioral indication of withdrawal. Like you can see that they're freaking out. Yeah, And we also had a physiological biomarker of an increased stress response, namely increased levels of cortisol. And I just feel like, you know, I I feel like that's a more comprehensive approach to understanding dependence or withdrawal. Um, But that doesn't, I guess it doesn't mean that this one isn't valid. It just means that I feel like there are better animal models to assess that particular phenomena.
0: Yeah. They didn't do a cortisol test. I don't think. Unless I no. missed it. Okay.
1: No. Yeah. The only endpoint was um, changes in that conditioned behavior of pressing the right lever ten times to get a food pellet. Yeah. That was the only endpoint they had.
0: And what what's the reason for the uh, naloxone? Because I know in uh, w- with humans it's Narcan, and that's the stuff that you give somebody if they're having an overdose. Um, what does that do? Because I know they gave morphine, one group got morphine, one group got mitragynine, then they were given Narcan, and then they were tested for, yeah, they were given Narcan. Um, right, right. Or naloxone. So what so, does that actually do? So I'm going to
1: just explain quickly the first two phases that they did, and then end with the naloxone one. It'll just make more sense that way. Okay. Um, So the first thing they were doing was looking at the acute effects of morphine, um, metragenine, or the control or vehicle, just no drug, but saline, um, the acute effects on behavior. So they wanted to know after the rats have stabilized and, and learned that pressing the right button equals get your food. um, If we give them drugs 30 minutes before they go into that, uh, that operant chamber, is it going to decrease the amount of times they press that button? So a change in the um, learned or operantly scheduled behavior. Okay. So that was the first one, acute exposure. If I just take a morphine or I take um, a metragenine, does it affect me immediately in some way that's behavioral? I guess is the best way I I would think about it. And so what they found was with metragenine, there was not a significant reduction in that response behavior compared to the controls. Um, it looks like it it sort of maybe dipped a little bit. They all dipped, even the control one dipped. But then the morphine one basically like hit the bottom of the graph. Yeah. It, it dropped immediately. And so, you know, I think we, I'm going to put an asterisk right here because I think it would be interesting to, to discuss why this behavioral test is a proxy for opiate abuse Because it works with opiates, but I want to dig into there. So so after they looked at the acute effects of behavior, they wanted to know, okay, are there indications of physiological dependence? So they're going to get all the rats back to stabilized, meaning they know when they go in the box, they're not taking any drugs. They go like 10, 14 days where they get it stabilized to where they get in, they go to the lever, they press it. So everybody's stabilized now. Now we're going to inject you two times a day, every day for two weeks, uh, with either morphine, metragenine, or the, uh, vehicle. Vehicle. Uh, And then we're going to give you the, the naloxone. So inducing withdrawal with naloxone. So what that does, I'm sure, you know, our audience has heard the stories. Maybe even some of you guys have seen it yourself. Um, I don't know if anybody's in law enforcement listening, but essentially, um, in the ER and, and out in the streets, I suppose, when, um, Doctors or or law enforcement officers give someone in the middle of an overdose Narcan, they wake up and they're and they're pretty agitated, they're pretty pissed off. They they were you know in a in a bliss of uh, an opiate blanket, and then all of a sudden they were just sort of ripped out of it immediately. Um, so essentially, that's what we're doing to the to the rats. We're getting them used to. Uh, the sort of the warm blanket of of opiates and and that for two weeks, taking it twice a day. And they had a bunch of different doses, a low dose and high dose. And then 30 minutes before they go into the operant chamber, we're going to induce withdrawal. We're going to inject them with the naloxone. The naloxone is going to get in their nervous system. It's going to kick off all of the morphine or uh, presumably metragenine molecules from the opiate receptors and bind to them, bind to them immediately. So the effects of, the opiates is just ceased immediately. Mm. Um, and it's a way to induce withdrawal.
0: They had like a washout period, and then they gave them ramonabant, which is an inverse CB1 receptor agonist. So do you know anything about that, or what does an inverse CB1 reseco- receptor agonist do?
1: So yeah it's a a cb1 agonist they use it um to modulate appetite i'm pretty sure i think it's a a weight loss is the official um approved use interesting to note too uh united states i think is the only country in the world that allows this stuff to be prescribed to humans still um i know the european union blocked it a, a long time ago um so what they, were gonna, what, what they were trying to do, and I want to pull up the paper just to make sure I get it right, but it, it, it seems to be that there was an indication in the literature that um, using this cannabinoid um, on animals that have been chronically treated with an opiate causes the same effects as essentially a, a naloxone shot in that it, it competes with or um, diminishes the intensity of the opiate activity in the brain, leading to a reduction of feeling that, that, that drug. Um, what I think that they were trying to, to really understand and the, and the point they were trying to make was we do know, and I would not disagree with the fact that the cannabinoid system and, and the opiate signaling system... Um, are pretty tightly interwined and can affect and, and modulate each other. That's primarily because the, the CB1 receptor sits on the, the receiving neuron, not the sending neuron. And so the sending neuron is shooting molecules into the synapse, that space between the two neurons. And <laughs> once that receiving neuron starts getting those signals from the neuron upstream, um, cannabinoids start going out, getting released, going back to the sending neuron to basically say like, got the message, settle it down. We're good. You know, they, they, it's called a retrograde, um, messenger and it basically calms down signals from happening. And so I don't know if I, I don't know if I've seen enough evidence that would allow me to confidently support the idea that this uh, CB1 cannabinoid receptor agonist uh competes to the same degree uh, in inducing withdrawal-like symptoms um, as naloxone. Um, and I, what they end up finding when when we are looking at the um, the use of of and or, or kratom alkaloids as an opiate substitute, so sort of the third phase that they investigated was that you know we'll give them uh, we'll give them morphine for two weeks, we'll give them naloxone and then we're going to give them metragenine to see if that um, counteracts the induced withdrawal Do, are you, you know what I'm saying?
0: yeah yeah
1: yeah so give them give them morphine for two weeks induce withdrawal with a naloxone shot then give them metragenine right you know right then and there 30 minutes before they go with the hypothesis being that if metragenine can alleviate some of the behavioral physiological symptoms of opiate withdrawal, then the uh, animals that received mitragenine would not demonstrate a decrease in the, in their responses inside the operant chamber. Um, but those that were given, and I, the other one they gave people was suboxone or the, or the rats with suboxone. Yeah. Um, and, and basically what they saw, I think was that um, not only did mitragynine, Uh, attenuate or lessen the severity of those withdrawal symptoms, um, it it resulted in not having to use as much of the Suboxone, um, but it was also paralleled by this cannabinoid.
0: Yeah, it says, although more work is needed, these data suggest that cannabinoid receptors may be involved in the development of mg physical physiological dependence and therefore may represent the neurochemical basis for MG or Kratom abuse and dependence liabilities.
1: Well, they were also separating the notion of developing physical dependence or tolerance, right? Yeah. Um, they started getting into a talk about like they were, they were distinguishing between two different stages of establishing physiological dependence. And they, I think that what okay. they were essentially saying was maybe, maybe, like morphine sort of activates and immediately starts heading down the path of physiological dependence. But there's something different about metragenine and the kratom alkaloids in that it doesn't lead to a reduction in the behavior they were using as a proxy for dependence. So like the behavior didn't change, but the uh, uh, the ability to uh, correlate the environment with the, withdrawal or the potential withdrawal, maybe there was a disconnect there. So there's two very like sort of nuanced stages where, you know, first you learn it and then after that you sort of embed it. And they were saying essentially that maybe Kratom doesn't, um, the Kratom alkaloids don't immediately induce dependence like morphine does, but very clearly um, that it it doesn't lead to changes in behavior and it's different somehow. And, And I really, you know, I think that it sort of becomes apparent in in their in sort of the narrative. I think that they're laying out here is that, and it's something that we've said many times, um, is that these are a novel class of compounds that we don't fully understand. And you know, there's a lot of times where, in this in this article, they're sort of like, well, we got we got this result, and uh, you know, there was no significance in this data, um, and that's that's what we got. And so this could it sort of goes along with what these other studies have shown, but it also sort of goes with the studies that were, you know, pr- suggesting something I- I completely different, um, which is, of course, always, always happens in science. But which is, I think, just an indication of the fact that, you know, doing more studies like this to try to tease apart those nuances is going to lead to um, better approaches, especially what she's talking about in this paper, which is essentially approaches to treating opiate use disorder.
0: It, it, it talks about the response rate. Is that the rate of h- how many times they're pressing the lever for food?
1: Well, so it's the response rate at a percentage of control. So the animals that didn't receive any of the drugs, yeah. just received the vehicle or the saline, they took their response rate and then sort of averaged everybody else's response rate to the control. So it's it's percentage change from control. You'll notice that the axis goes from zero to one hundred. Um, so the you know the bar, the, the bar is where the co- the control animals were with no drugs. So they're 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 illustrating the effect uh, or the difference um, or the variation of the treated drug treated animals from the non drug treated animals.
0: They did two experiments, and the second one, that two groups of rats both got morphine, and then they tested how um, whether. The buprenorphine or mitrageny would, would um, the different responses in each group, like right. one group was given my Right, tragedy. Yeah. So, so it, it, yeah, said, think... it said um, in that case, the mitragenine group increased response rates and then the buf- buprenorphine didn't. So oh. I was just wondering if that, you know, it shows that morphine withdrawal symptoms are less severe uh, when they're given mitragenine.
1: So, yes. That is, that is the right conclusion. Um, and I, th- I believe you're talking about figure five. And so figure five B, you can see that the morphine treated uh, rats who were given higher doses of um the, the line goes up. So their mean response is increased, meaning metragenine alleviated or attenuated or reduced the impact of withdrawal-like symptoms better than Suboxone.
0: So another thing this brings up, and, and I kind of brought it up in my article, was this is they gave them 98% pure Um And it also mentions, and I've heard this before, that the 7-hydroxamitraginine might be the stuff that actually causes a little bit of dependence issues and maybe has bigger opioid-like effects. Um, so would this study maybe make, the ca- be used to make the case that my tragedy should be extracted and used as a medicine on its own, separate from the Kratom plant?
1: So that's interesting. Um, that's interesting. So it, so the, it wasn't like uh, a powder was injected into the rats. I just want to make mm-hmm. sure we're clear on that first. So it, it was, you know, it was mixed into a saline solution and, and then um, and then injected, right? Yeah. So I, in, um, it, it wasn't like they were... You know, it, I don't think that, you know, you get visions of sort of like Scarface sitting there, right? Like, oh, they got 99% pure uh, metragenine, you know, that's different than the plant. But, but I agree with you in that it, it is. And, and the note that I wrote down about that, the, the author of the paper basically said at the onset that the, there are therapeutic issues that need to be worked out before we could start using uh, metragenine or kratom in a, in like a, a, an official therapeutic setting, um, in that we need to know whether or not there is a liability to induce physical dependence as there are with, with all opiates. You mm-hmm. know? So it's sort of just silly. It, it's silly to say, Oh, well, if, if Kratom is going to be a, a good treatment path for opiate use disorder, it has to have no, uh, dependence or tolerance liability because, suboxone does. I mean, all of the opiates yeah. that we do have now are the same thing in terms of how they're received by the body. They might last a little bit longer, but they're the same thing. Whereas the creative alkaloids are not the same thing. Mm-hmm. And, and you're right. They did make a distinction saying that um, it seems to be reported in the human literature, as well as some other studies that were done, that the 7-hydroxy is more powerful and that may be to blame for um, t- development of physical tolerances or dependence, um, but that they didn't give them any. Um, but the other thing that that worried me about what she said. Well, if we want to make this a therapeutic, we gotta eliminate the the the, the um, dependence liability. Essentially, we don't want to get them hooked when we're trying to treat them for opioid use disorder. Just getting there would be a better step from where we are. You know that. But one, one thing no one ever mentions here, and I think it's something that I've said on the podcast before, is is based on the, the method of administration. And yeah. so my worry is that, and it's, it, it's inevitable that it will happen, um, but if we were to essentially get Kratom in a pharmaceutical pill, um, it would lead to a situation where people who are trying to get off opiates – would essentially just be like they are now in that, they, okay, now you're taking that pill for the rest of your life, you know, Suboxone, you're gonna, you're just going to be taking Suboxone every day. It, it's better than, you know, uh, the risks associated with sort of, you know, IV use of heroin, right? But it's, it's still the same thing. And I feel like when it gets, when drugs get extracted down to one compound, get pressed into a pill and just become something that you can toss in your mouth without even really thinking about it it becomes a lot more, I want to say convenient, but it's almost too easy for someone trying to transition out of, uh, you know, an opiate problem. And that if they recognize the fact that if the method of administration gradually deters you from continuing to use what you were using, you know, at the beginning, you're like, I just don't want to go through opiate withdrawal. I've been there. I don't want to do that again. I'll eat as much plant matter as you got. It's better than going through this. But then two or three months later, you, you've sort of, you know, found your way off of it. And then, and then at some point the notion of consuming that much plant material becomes sort of unappealing or a pain, or you, you know, you spilled the creative powder on your, on your wife's counter and, and it made a huge mess. And, you know, it just, it turns out to be not worth it, um, as much as it was when someone was at that sort of delicate transitional state. And that's a, not like that in, and, it, that in and of itself, I guess is what I'm trying to say to summarize here. That in and of itself is, um, a way to sort of protect against a dependence liability, make it not as easy and convenient to consume quickly. Um, Method of administration also goes into that, you know, that play. Yeah. That discussion.
0: Yeah. They they did mention something. uh, It it was a different point that you just made, but it says, uh, because the rats were given um, intraparative, Peritoneal injections, which I think is the abdominal lining, because I looked it up. Um, mm-hmm. But it said uh, the difference in route of administration would yield different rates of onset of drug effect, drug levels, duration of effect, and metabolism. So that's kind of a different point. But they did um, mention something about that, and also the fact—yeah—also the fact that humans consume one to five, according to some of these studies. One to five milligrams per kilogram of my tragedy. When they consume kratom, um, rats in the study some sometimes got fifty, and then they even actually mentioned that a rat uh, from the study. I didn't find it. It was like from 1972, so I don't even think it's online. But uh, yeah,
1: Maco, 1972.
0: Yeah, he said they said uh, a rat got a dose as high as 806 milligrams per kilogram. And it failed to produce any toxic effects of my tragedy of my tragedy. So that's that was pretty interesting to me.
1: Yeah, yeah, and, and you know you're right in mentioning the they did acknowledge that um, their, the way that their method of administration um, could have led to some differences when you try to translate it up to humans, and that of course, especially with opiates, because of first pass metabolism. Um, so it wasn't going through the the rat's digestive system. Um, it was just sort of getting injected into the, the the body cavity. Um, and so that, that could lead to some issues, but they also, I mean, that whole discussion where you ended about the 806 milligrams per kilogram, you know, there's a big section here where they are sort of trying to make sure that they were giving the rats, what is called a human equivalent dose. Um, and there were you know, I think she mentioned three different studies and the ranges at which the people self reported how much they took. And then you realize that they had no idea what the content of metragenine was in those, not let alone how much tea they drank that day. Right. It's just a completely, uh, inaccurate way of understanding different dose responses. If if that's what you're interested in doing, what, what they're doing here. Um, but they were trying as best they could to match um, what would be a human equivalent dose, with why it's reduced down to uh, milligrams per kilogram. And just to put that into perspective, this 806 milligrams per kilogram, I don't know, you know I don't have a good uh, sort of just ballpark estimate of how much of a, a kilogram is and what that relates to uh, like humans or, or rats. But uh, essentially, yeah. uh, one, of the, one of the extracts, the extracts that you can get, the liquid extracts of kratom are usually you know between 100 and 250 milligrams of uh of alkaloids so that would be equivalent to taking four four of the of the 15 milliliter extracts all at once and you know uh, I, I don't know I I don't know how the rats were even seeing straight. I mean they, they had to have gotten the wobbles, but it, it is interesting because I feel like a dose of morphine that high would have definitely led to respiratory depression and death. Um, yeah. but with metragenine, you know, an absurdly high dose did not cause death, at least. That's all I say, is that it failed to produce any toxic effects. And it and it's crazy that it was in nineteen seventy two. This guy Mako was so really way ahead of the ball.
0: Yeah, I, could, I didn't, couldn't find it, but yeah, I wouldn't mind reading that just because that's... A... It's called Some Observations
1: on the Pharmacology of Mitragyzine. Maybe uh, okay. we should do that uh, next week, you know, do a little sort of uh, retro or look looking back episode. So it's just, this is such a new paper that came out that we're doing today. Uh, uh, and it'll be interesting to see sort of how he tees up everything. You know, like it was, it was really easy for the... Um, the researchers in, in current times to say, oh, well, you know, there's a public health issue. Uh, like all scientific papers start out, there's a public health issue that we need more options for, so we're doing this. Uh, what was he doing in 1972, and how did he even know about Kratom
0: back then? So the conclusion is weird, it, and because I know some people would look at this study and say, okay, cra- this means Kratom isn't addictive. Um, and I'm, I'm a little more careful than that, I mean, because it's one study. That doesn't mean it proves anything beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, um, exclusion says, The findings suggest that MG does not induce physiological dependence, but can alleviate the physical symptoms associated with morphine withdrawal, which represent the desired characteristics of novel... <laughs> pharmacotherapeutic interventions for managing opioid right. use disorder so is this the same thing as saying my tragedy does not cause physical addiction and if not what's the difference?
1: So great question and there is the and I appreciate um, the, the sort of hesitance to you know run out and start doing you know shot to the to the moon that it, it's not as addictive and and it sort of jumps back to, what I was mentioning earlier, wherein why does a reduction in the, uh, amount of presses on a bar after 30 minutes after getting injected with, with an opiate, um, tell you anything significant uh, that has translational value, uh, to, to human behavior, um, versus if you were to do like some sort of other stress test, like you could put a rat, uh, you could get like, a Um, the scent of a dog or a a fox, right? One of the predators of the rats put that in their cage and just they would freak out, right? There's other ways to sort of induce stressful situations. So why, why did they pick just this bar one? Well, um, we had morphine, right? And we had rats. And when we gave the rats morphine and put them in this box, it led to an enormous reduction in the number of responses. So, Basically, I guess what I'm saying is that how confident can we be that this is actually an indicator of physical dependence or withdrawal um, versus being just a sort of phenomenon that happens when when you're given a classical opiate, right? It would have been great if they had physiological measures like cortisol measurements, then it, then at least you'd have some sort of biomarker to go along with the behavior. And then you could be a little bit more confident. But back in the day when they were developing these tests, and to a certain extent, it's what I was doing with the zebrafish, no one had given all of these controlled substances to zebrafish and sort of indexed and characterized their behavior in a novel tank. So that's basically what my, my graduate thesis was, the, the full sort of exposition of this is what all of these drugs do, and this is how they're different, and these, this is how they're the same. When they were making this operant conditioning, holy shit, morphine, every single time across the board, causes a reduction in the mean response rate compared to the rats that didn't have the, the morphine. So to go back to your question, is it fair to say – what it, what is fair to say is, is that whatever – is happening with metragenine and the alkaloids in kratom. it's different than what is happening in classical opiates. So like, you know, yeah. morphine, uh, heroin, um, the hydrocodone, oxycodone, all of those, all of the, all the, uh, suboxone, all the ones that are out there. Yeah. Um, so it, it's, if you wanted to be conservative, it's really difficult to say anything definitive beyond that we just know that it's different and and we know that it's different because it is seemingly you know and they mentioned this in the paper it's seemingly everyone who uses it uh and reports the studies that are out now about human reports on the effects say i use this for pain reduction or i use this to help get through um opiate withdrawal so very quickly and, and you see this with all the the sort of um political hysteria uh, on banning kratom um, they said, oh, that's an opiate that, well, we, we, you know, we can't have that. We can't have just opiates running around yeah. willy nilly. What this paper demonstrates is that the mechanism of action of metragenine is different from that of, uh, classical opiates while also having an overlap in the effects that they cause, namely pain reduction and activation of, of the, uh, of the, uh, the opiate receptors. I don't, they were saying one of them and I think morphine binds to the mu opiate receptor, I think like a glove, right? Those are like the first two things we knew morphine Mm. out of poppies and, uh, oh, and then we found the mu opiate receptor. There was a, there was a sentence or two and I don't know if it was cited and I I didn't go dig deep on it, but what they were saying, I think was, and it might've been even the difference between seven hydroxy and, uh, metragenine in that one of them, while it does bind to the mu opiate receptor, it's, it's primary or where it binds stronger is in the Kappa or the, um, is Delta or Kappa, one of the other ones. Um, and so it, it seems to be according to the behavioral results of this study that we're reviewing that that distinction or that difference alone could lead to different dependence, physical dependence or, um, withdrawal, severity of withdrawal, um, like manifest manifestations. If that makes sense. Like just that little difference, is uh, showing up in these behavioral tests. They're av- evaluating dependence and withdrawal.
0: Yeah, and it it binds to that receptor differently than than classic opiates, right? Because it's it's or mm-hmm. er, maitracogenine and 7-hydroxy bind to the same receptor, but but not in such a way that produce produces the um, uh, like the respiratory depression. I think. So, it, the one we it, about so too, just because it binds uh, to uh, it, it doesn't mean it does the same thing, basically.
1: Right, yes. yeah. Just because it's binding that receptor doesn't mean it's doing the same thing. And I think there's indication that, you know, we've talked about the recruitment of other um, cell surface signaling molecules once a receptor is activated. Um, we know that the classical opiates induce that activation of the secondary uh, proteins within the cell wall and lead to the envelopment of the receptors back into the cell or reduction of receptors overall and therefore tolerance or having to take more to get the same effects. We know that um, metragenine doesn't recruit those those secondary molecules, right? So that's a, a distinction in and of itself too. And you're exactly right. Just because it binds to um, the same receptor doesn't mean it does it in the same way. It's not, it's where the, you know, the whole lock and key sort of analogy, of uh, that, you know, the, the key is the opiate or the signaling molecule and the lock that you stick it into is the receptor molecule. It breaks down because in reality, you can stick a bunch of different keys in the receptors and they'll lead to some level of activation. I don't know if they're going to open the door, but you know, you're going to know that it's in there. Um, and we just don't know very much beyond that. What was sort of interesting for me seeing how, number one, how uh, well-developed the extraction and isolation of mitragynine protocols have come. When we gave it to zebrafish uh, in grad school, I could only find one paper in in published scientific literature that had um, an extraction protocol in order to get get you know, mature, the active compounds out of the leaf into some sort of um, isolate. But it was in Chinese, and despite my best attempts at emailing the authors and the publishers and the journal and everything, could never get my hands on it. So that's developed you know quite significantly. What we did when we gave uh, the zebrafish the uh, kratom or exposed them, just to see what would happen is we ended up just putting them in kratom tea um, and letting them swim <laughs> around in it for a while. brood it up and then, and then let them swim in it. Um, I mentioned that because it was because of our inability to extract it at Tulane, uh, Tulane neuroscience department, there's an entire lab dedicated to trying to find, um, pain management drugs or, or, uh, a target of drugs that is like you said earlier, doesn't induce the, the respiratory depression, which is what people die from, but then also doesn't induce physical dependence or um, withdrawal-like symptoms or the liability or severity of that uh, tolerance development and physical dependence is much less. And they essentially, within the pain management research community, they call that the, you know, the holy grail, the, the, the goose and the golden egg. If you could figure out how to uh, reach pain management effectively physiologically, so it actually does help with pain management, but it doesn't induce dependence, um, then you have essentially, you know, uh, found a workaround about the biggest problem with the, uh, you know, humans longest, um, longest approach, pharmaceutical approach to to pain treatment in opiates. Um, And I remember having conversations with this uh, professor whose lab was a floor down from ours saying, you've got to look into this Kratom. You've got to look into this. This is, you know, and they acknowledge it in this paper too, because they essentially say, you know, there there's plenty of indication that kratom can be used as a substitute for opiates, especially if you're trying to transition off. Namely, because so many people are doing it, it it must have some effect, right? It must have some benefit. Um, but we never we never could isolate it, and we can never get it into his protocols. And I you know I I want to I almost want to reach out to him now and just like. Say hey, did you get over to the you know the kratom alkaloid yet? Because that's where that's where everybody's pivoting.
0: Yeah, Oh, uh, that's awesome. That's like <laughs> it's pretty exciting. It is. Yeah, I, it's just interesting that just some of these results have coincided with stuff people told me. Especially, I pay attention. A lot of people have you know they try to get off um, heroin and other stuff with suboxin or buprenorphine and. Uh, then these studies suggest that, yeah, the Kratom helped me get off the Suboxone. So it, there it is right there in the rats where they didn't show withdrawal symptoms um, having mitragynine after Suboxone. So it's pretty
1: right, pretty right. cool. Um, or the amount of Suboxone you needed to take in order to get a similar level of release is lower, right? So of course it will be able to help trans- uh, transition people off Suboxone. You know, the other thing is, Suboxone is a long-lasting opiate, buprenorphine, with naloxone. So you take it with Narcan. They're, they're 50-50 in the pill. So the idea is essentially that you take them both at the same time you're not going to get too much activation. You're not going to get too much um, like rejection of activation. You're just going to be sort of right in the middle, right? Just to sort of keep, you know, the, you're not going to go too far to the left. You're not going to go too far to the right. It, it just is... I feel like if, if everybody were to step like three steps back and then look back at the problem and say, we're currently treating the people with opiate use disorder with opiates and Narcan, and and they just take that for the rest of their life. You know, it just, it's, it's crazy for me to sort of wrap my head around that. Um, but you know, I guess in some ways too, it just speaks to, um, how, maybe how unique the opiate compounds are, right. And how valuable they were and what we and what they had done for us in our history. But we're now getting to the point and and studies like this. And and one of the reasons why I was so excited to do this one is now we're starting to disentangle where the kratom alkaloids are similar and where they're different. And when it comes to the development of tolerance and the severity of withdrawal symptoms, uh, there seems to be emerging a trend that uh, kratom is not uh, just another opiate. There's There are different things happening.
0: Thanks again, Dr. Jonathan Cache for another episode of Journal Club. We try to get these out every two weeks, so that means the next one will be October 1st. Kratom Science Podcast is on every week, and you can find that and other Kratom news and information at kratomscience.com. The music is Captain Big Wheel, and the song is Moonrunner. Alright, take care.